You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. All right, you can be seated. If you are someone who likes to take notes, you can. there's one of these on the back sh- table there. Um, or you can just listen, that's fine too. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, in just a few moments. So July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards began a sermon that he really had a hard time finishing. <laughs> he preached his famous sermon in Enfield, Connecticut called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he had preached that sermon before at his home church of Northampton um, to really no effect. But then when he preached this to this little congregation of 95 people in Enfield, Connecticut, um, something began to happen in the middle of the sermon. Jonathan Edwards was not the most dynamic speaker. In fact, he read his sermons pretty monotone, rarely looking up at the congregation at all. And, uh, but all of a sudden, people began to be deeply moved by the sermon to the point that he had to actually stop the sermon a couple of different times because he couldn't finish it because of just the emotional response that was happening as he was preaching this message about God's holiness, about the danger that sinners are in before a holy God, and the way that God has provided a means of escape from his own wrath. Uh, This particular church had been known to be somewhat resistant to what the great awakening that was happening in the larger area. And through the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield, there had been uh, all of a sudden this revival that was happening in the American colonies. Uh, the American colonies had become pretty lethargic spiritually because of deism and atheism and universalism and Unitarianism. Um, and, uh, and so uh, things were pretty spiritually dead at the time. And then all of a sudden, through the ordinary preaching of God's word, um, men like George Whitfield and Edwards and, and Wesley, God began to ignite a... Um, a revival where people were uh, confessing their sin, coming to faith in Christ, and the new birth. The new birth was happening in the life of people, and it drastically changed the American colonies uh, for the better. Following the American Revolution, there was beginning to be this longing for the old days. The revival fires had kind of waned, and now there was this desire for revival again, but it didn't seem like God was blessing the ordinary preaching of his word. He, the prayer and the preaching just didn't seem to be having the same effect that it did back in the good old days of uh, the, great, uh, the, the Great Awakening. And so there were some, Charles Finney most famously, who began to try to reverse engineer revival. Uh, what it was is that the gospel didn't seem to be working, and so let's begin to change some things. Let's begin to... Uh, provide a more emotional service, let's have an anxious bench, let's have people come forward, let's do all of these ploys to try to help the gospel be more effective. And in a sense, there became 
um, this, this rise of decisionalism and, um, and really was a, I would say, um, and this is kind of a blanket statement, but largely the Second Great Awakening um, kind of uh, changed a little bit of what American evangelical was, uh, evangelicalism was all about. This Charles Grandison Finney, um, one theologian named Michael Horton, says, No single man is more responsible for the distortion of Christian truth in our age than, than Charles Grandison Finney. His new measures, his ways of helping the gospel message, created a framework for modern decisional theology and evangelical revivalism. And really, American Christianity has never really been the same since in many ways. For 150 to 200 years, we have had an impatience with the gospel message. We have wanted to try to help it out, to modify it, to make it more palatable, to make it bigger and better and faster. And we've come a long ways from that first great awakening, which was just the ordinary prayer and preaching of the word. We now have had this tendency now to want to help the gospel out. Um, and, uh, and, and, and what happened was that a lot of heresies began to, to come out of what was called the burned over district in New York, is that these revival fires, you kept having to top it. You kept having to go bigger and better with a new gospel message because you had to do more to try to get people to respond to it. The gospel message itself didn't have enough power, so we had to get more and more extreme, more and more intense. And in, in, uh, in western New York, it became known as the burned over district, which is still a hard place to do ministry today. People became almost inoculated, hardened to the gospel. And there were a number of gospel corruptions that came out of that, Mormonism, Adventism, um, um, uh, Jehovah's Witness, all of these different areas out of this, like, this discontentment with the gospel and this desire to have something new and better, these new measures. And now we have, as, an, as Americans, have been exporting this all over the world. Uh, prosperity gospel, social gospel, we have now been exporting this. And so American Christianity has had a hard and uneasy relationship with the gospel message. We have felt like we needed to help it out. We needed to add to it. We needed to make it more palatable. And we're still trying to recover from that in many ways. And that's why here at Redeeming Grace Church is that we want to be very much a gospel-centered church. We want to be, you you look at your New Testament and you look at the gospels and the gospel that Jesus preached and the gospel that Paul preached, you look through the gospel of Acts and you realize that the gospel is sufficient. That the simple preaching of God's word is sufficient. That people really are saved by the gospel and not the gospel plus some help. Not the gospel plus some new measures. And so here we are committed to the gospel above all. That's the title of this message. And what I want to do in January is really look at um, why we exist. Why do we exist as a church? And I just want to walk through some of the things that are the most important to us as a church that we really need to, to be on the same page about if we're going to move forward in the way that I think God wants us to, uh, the ways that we learn from Scripture that God wants His church to be, God wants His people to be, and also what we see down through history um, is the way that God works in history through the gospel and through His church. Um, we've become impatient um, in this country with the local church, the regular preaching of God's Word, prayer, church membership. We've, we've, had, a, we've had an uneasy relationship with those things, and I want us to be committed to those things that the Bible teaches and that I think Christian history shows are the ordinary means by which God does his extraordinary work. And sometimes he blesses it with supernatural revival, but sometimes it's just the patient faithfulness of, that's up to him. We can't reverse engineer revival. We can only proclaim and trust in the gospel and God determines the breadth and length of that message. So it's our job to be faithful. It's his job to do the saving 
and the, and the work there. So, um, so today we want to talk about why the gospel, the, the gospel above all. Why we exist is the gospel above all, above all other priorities. The gospel doesn't need our help. And here's why the gospel must be above all. This is our first point here. It's why the gospel must be above all. First of all, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. First, or Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul tells to the Romans, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God. It's not one of many powers of God. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you go back into Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, he's with his disciples and he looks at them and says, who do the people say that I am? And they give a a bunch of answers about some people think he's a prophet, some people think he's Elijah. And he goes, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are Christ, the Son of God. He, He declares... The gospel, so to speak, he he declares the gospel and then Jesus goes, that was not revealed to you by man, but by God. And you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, the rock, the gospel message. I will build a church. I will build out a called out assembly on that confession. That's what will draw my people together is that confession and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how do the gates, how, how does heaven get pillaged? How do the gates of hell get breaking down? By a group of people who are founded on the gospel, who are making the confession of the gospel. Not the gospel plus anything else, just the gospel. It is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians, we're going to get to 15 in just a moment. I'm setting us up for, uh, for that. Early in the book, 1 Corinthians 1.18, here's what Paul says. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's folly to those who are perishing. If you want to know you're perishing... Think the gospel is insufficient, right? The gospel is, word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being power of God. And then he says in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was not this magnificent speaker who just had you spellbound. For I decided, listen to this, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God so I came in purposefully giving you nothing but gospel and I came in giving it in the most unimpressive way so that then when you're saved by that gospel, no one can say it's because that guy was so, such a powerful speaker, he was so wise, it was purely the power of God that saved you. I did that on purpose. I purposefully left you hanging in every other way, withheld advice I might have so that your rest, that your salvation might rest purely in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God. So first of all, The gospel must be above all because it is the power of God. It is the only thing we have to save sinners. It's all we have. And we resolve to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Secondly, it has some alluring counterfeits. It has some alluring counterfeits. Galatians 1, the whole letter of Galatians is all about addressing a counterfeit gospel. Galatians 1, 6, listen to how he starts this letter uh, to this church in Galatia. 
or churches in Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There are people who want to tweak it, twist it, change it, modify it. And listen to what he says here in verse 8. But if we, even if I were to come and give you another gospel, I don't have the authority. You reject me. (laughs) Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, condemned forever. Even if you have an angel appear to you that gives you a different gospel than this, let them be accursed. As we have said, Before, so now, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Just repeats it, just to make sure you did not mishear me. For I am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's many ways that people create another gospel. Some is, in some ways, it's by taking away from the gospel. Some people would want to take away the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Some would want to take away the atonement aspect of the gospel. And so that's one way to create another gospel is by taking away from the message. Others, like we have here in Galatians, want to add to the message. That's what the Galatians were doing is we wanted to add circumcision. We wanted to go ahead and make you a good Jewish person in, in, in addition to... Um, uh, making you a Christian. And so by adding to the gospel, adding anything to faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, adding anything to that is to pervert the gospel and to be condemned. For some, it's by minimizing the gospel. Maybe by not making it the most important thing, but making it a side thing. That can be a corruption of the gospel. Or by caricaturing the gospel. By so emphasizing one aspect that you leave off and not giving a balanced understanding of all that the gospel teaches the different aspects of the gospel the only thing you cannot do is make too much of the gospel you cannot make too much of it paul himself said i resolved to know nothing among you but christ and him crucified Um, and so it is there is alluring counterfeits so the gospel must be held must be preserved must be carefully proclaimed and understood because there are some alluring counterfeits It is nice to want to add something to the gospel, the gospel plus something else, uh, as as our grounds for hope. Uh, Third, it is the priority of Jesus. The gospel must be above all because it is the priority of Jesus. Think of Mark chapter 1. The very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1 are this. It says in Mark 1.14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Which then tells you what Jesus' ministry is going to be about. You flip ahead a little bit to verse 35 of Mark chapter 1. Jesus has done some healing. He's cast out some demons. And here's what he says in verse 35. And, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he, meaning Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. In Luke chapter 4, it talks about Jesus deciding not to heal or cast out any more demons in one area 
because he had to go preach in another area. The casting out of demons, the healing of bodies, all of the other ministry was in service to the proclamation of the gospel. And if he was going to cut something short, it was going to be healing diseases. It was going to be uh, casting out demons. That was not his primary um, ministry. His primary ministry was to come and to proclaim a gospel that he himself would purchase with his own life and death. That is why he came. You think of Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's resurrected. He's ascending into heaven. His disciples ask him this. They say, is it now time for you to bring in the kingdom? All right, Jesus, here we go. And Jesus goes, it is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will receive power to be proclaimers of the gospel. It is not your job to know when Christ will or won't return. How he'll bring about the kingdom. When he'll do it. That is not your job. You will not receive power for that. You will receive power to proclaim the gospel. You will receive power for that. So he's not concerned with eliminating all physical suffering. As good, of an, as, a, as, good as that might have been, that was not why he came. He was not concerned with taxes or government politics. He was not concerned with that. He was not concerned with solving the problems of the poor. He came to proclaim the good news of the gospel. That was his priority. And then lastly here, the gospel must be above all because it demands all of us. Think of Philippians 1, 27 and 30. He says this, Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So part of living a life worthy of the gospel is living in unity with our brothers and sisters. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. The fact that you don't get rattled is a sign to them that the gospel is true. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Our confidence in the midst of opposition is, is part of our proclamation that we're standing on firm ground and they're standing on sand. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you, listen to this, verse 29, for it has been granted to you a gift that you for the sake of Christ should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What a gift that you have the privilege of suffering for the gospel. What a gift, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Luke 18 with the rich young ruler, he says, go sell all you have and come follow me. The gospel demands your all. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, he's just unpacked the gospel for 11 chapters. And then he turns a corner in, in Romans chapter 11 and says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, meaning the gospel, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Total allegiance to him. It demands all of us. So, why must the gospel be above all? Because it's the power of God. It has some allurements that will lead straight to hell. It is the priority of Jesus and it demands all of us. It, is, it demands all of us. So in this church, we want to have the gospel above all. There, that's our introduction. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to start with verses 3 through 6, and then go back to verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. What is the essence of the gospel message? 
Let's just break this down because Paul here is dealing with a Corinthian church. He is writing a letter to a Corinthian church that is all kinds of messed up. They, uh, he is gone, he's proclaimed the gospel there, he's got this church established, and then he's here, her, he has this, um, uh, someone sends him some questions and he hears about the reputation of this Corinthian church of just being a total disaster in almost every, every way. You think of in chapter 1, there's divisions in the church. 1 and 3, there is a desire for prominence, there's rivalry in the church in chapter 4. There's sexual immorality being celebrated in the church in chapter 5. There seems to be some engagement in prostitution in some measure within the church, chapter 6. There's lawsuits between the members of the church in chapter 5. There is, or in chapter 6, singleness, marriage, and marriage to unbelievers seems to be super confusing in chapter 7. Eating food sacrificed to idols in chapters 8 and 9. Being involved in idolatrous demonics is an issue that they're having in chapter 10. Gender roles in the church, chapter 11. God has put some of them to death because of their misuse of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. They have spiritual gifts that are dividing the body in chapter 12. There seems to be, according to chapter 13, an absence of love among the body, or at least it's not evident that that is their most important thing. And there's making of speaking in tongues more important than the proclamation of the of, of, of a clear pro- proclamation in chapter 14. So this church is tremendously dysfunctional and guess where he starts in one and two the foolishness of the gospel and then he starts to work with them through their issues through all of that and he comes to chapter 15 and closes his book with a reminder about the gospel and here is what he says first corinthians 15 3 through 6 the essence of the gospel message he says for i delivered to you a first importance first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then it says to 500 others at one time. So here we go. He's saying, I've delivered to you what is of first importance. What must be above all. Your greatest priority. The most important thing. First importance. Not first in terms of like it came first. But first in terms of priority. This is the foundation thing. This is the most important thing. In a church that you have all of this dysfunction, none of it will be fixed if you don't have the gospel as first importance. This is your power to get things right. This is your, this is it. And here's what he says. I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that. And he's going to go ahead and lay out what is of first importance. It is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. That's it. That is the first importance, fundamental, must be above all message. This is what you must stand on no matter what. And let's just break it down into five parts. One is the person of Christ. The person of Christ. That Christ died for our sins. Not just anybody, but Christ, the God-man, the one who came born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, himself proved to be God in the flesh, lived without sin, and then willingly went to a cross. And on that cross, he accepted the payment. He he was due on human sin. So the identity of Jesus is essential. You must have Jesus right or you miss the gospel. The identity of Jesus is essential. He is who he is. 
He is the God-man promised from the Old Testament. He is the Messiah King of Israel. He is the only one qualified enough, powerful enough, and perfect enough to fix the issue. So the first, most, the first issue with the gospel, the first fundamental piece of the gospel message is the identity of Jesus Christ, who he is. The sinless son of God who's come to save humanity, fully God, fully man, promised from the Old Testament, the only one qualified enough to fix the problem of sin. The only sinless one. And then the second part, the second piece, is the atonement for sin. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So there's an atonement for sin. There must be a payment rendered. There must be, um, there must be a sacrifice made for sin. The accomplishment of Jesus. So we have his person, who he is, and then what he has accomplished is the other part of the gospel. The accomplishment of Jesus is essential. Not just who he is, but what he has done. He lived a sinless life, becoming a suitable, vicarious substitute, a sacrifice for sin, which means that he could stand in the place of sinners. Because he is a human being, he could stand in place of humanity. Because he was sinless, he didn't have his own sin to pay for. Because he's God, he can pay for uh, an incredible amount of sin. He can pay an infinite amount of sin. He can, he can take the payment for that. And this also tells us something about God himself, that God is holy. He is relentlessly holy. He is perfectly just. He sees everything, knows everything, and never changes, which means if we sin against that God, we are eternally separated from him. We are eternally under his wrath. Nothing escapes his, his sight he knows everything, he sees everything, he never changes. He will never stop being holy. And he will never stop, he, he, will, he will never, he will be perfectly just for eternity. So if we stand as sinners before him, we've got no escape. He's never going to change. And we do not want to be on the wrong side of his holy. You have in, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord and he stands before him. And the angels are crying out, holy, 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 and they cover their faces. Even angels in all of their wonder and glory. And when they sing, the foundations of the earth shake, or the foundations of heaven shake. So these are the kinds of angels that when they sing, they have such power, even in their voices, to shake heaven. And they can't look at God because of His holiness. And then Isaiah is before this holy God, and guess what he says? He says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. His sin becomes so evident Woe is me, I am undone. I'm going to come apart at the seams. I need to jump into the lake of fire now. Like I am worthy of judgment and wrath. I, a prophet, am before a holy God and I can't stand it. And then an angel takes a coal from the altar, a place of sacrifice, applies it to his mouth and he's cleansed. And now he can stand in the presence of the holy God and they have this conversation. Because of an atonement made, Isaiah is cleansed and now can stand before a holy God. And that's what Jesus is accomplishing. Jesus is taking the wrath. He is purchasing. He is purchasing us. He is on the cross taking God's wrath and anger. And on that cross, he dies. Christ takes that. In his death on the cross, he takes the right displeasure and perfect vengeance, the holy wrath of an eternal God, and quenches it, drains it, empties it, absorbs it entirely for those who would trust and believe, receive him. So that's the second part, who Jesus is and then what he's done. He has provided atonement before God. He has borne the wrath for sin on man's behalf. And then we have the third element, which is the resurrection from the dead. 
You see the emphasis there on him being buried. He wasn't just spiritually dead. He was physically dead. He was buried. He was buried in the ground. This wasn't a hoax. He really was buried and was raised on the third day. You see the scriptures make a real emphasis on that just to be clear that he was bodily, really fully dead. And he was buried in the ground. Proof that, and then he rises from the grave, the resurrection from the dead. It proves that Jesus is divine because only God can raise the dead. And only God can raise, (laughs) God raised Christ from the dead. It also proves that God favorably received the sacrifice of Jesus. Right? God raised him from the dead as a vindication that yes, this man is the son of god this man his what the message he preached the atonement he made has been accepted by god the check cleared so to speak the check that jesus wrote cleared he had sufficient funds to pay for humanity's debt it is paid in full and he is risen from the dead you see the fourth element there the testimony of scripture you see twice that these things happened in accordance with the scriptures meaning the old testament scriptures These things happen in accordance with the Scriptures. The Old Testament was setting us up for this all along. From the fall, from the creation and fall, and the promise of of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the sacrifices down through the ages, all of these pictures and types and symbols in the Old Testament all come clicking together in Jesus. They all perfectly fit together. And so the Scriptures hold out that Jesus is the Messiah. It's in perfect fulfillment of the Scriptures. Says this. This is Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Jesus appears with a couple of disciples as they're walking to Emmaus, and this is Resurrection Day. Um, and they've heard these rumors that Jesus is raised. They haven't seen it, but they're heading off to Emmaus and they're walking. They're talking about these things, and then this mysterious person appears next to them, starts walking with them. It's Jesus, and uh, he asks them some questions about what's going on. And they're like, "Are you serious? Like, have you not been around all weekend? This was the weirdest weekend ever." Jesus, all this stuff. And then Jesus finally can't, hold, can't stand it anymore. <laughs> he says in verse 25 of chapter 24, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? You know the scriptures. You should, you should be fully aware of what was going to happen this weekend. And verse 27, this is awesome. And beginning with Moses... And all of the prophets, that's just shorthand for the entire Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That whole Old Testament is all setting you up for Jesus, all setting you up for me. I think if I could take a time travel token and go back, this would be a place maybe I would go. I would love to be on that eight-mile walk with Jesus. As he, the resurrected Jesus, showed me, explained to me all of the things in the Old Testament that were concerning himself. That would be one of my one of my, if I had some time travel tokens, I would use one on that. Would love to be with Jesus and show and, and hear him describe, hear him preach himself from the Old Testament. So the testimony of Scripture foretold in the Old Testament, perfect fulfillment. Um, and Luke 24, Paul says that his message is in accordance with the Scriptures. And then lastly, the apostolic witness. He says that they, he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The, new, the apostolic witness is your New Testament. So he died in accordance with the scriptures, Old Testament, and with the apostolic witness, Cephas and then the twelve, and we wrote about it, we went to our deaths for it. The New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament, all pointing to this one thing of first importance, 
that Christ, the God-man, perfectly sin, uh, perfect and sinless, went to the cross, and on that cross made an atonement for our sins. Our primary problem was our separation from God because of sin, being under his wrath. He rose again from the dead on the third day, and people saw him. Old Testament, New Testament, all proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ who died on the cross, rose again for the salvation of mankind. That's the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what must be of first importance. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. How the gospel stays above all. Because he is dealing with this church that is deeply dysfunctional in every way, and yet he hasn't given up on them. Why? Because the gospel. The gospel can change them. The gospel didn't just draw them together as a church. It's going to be the gospel that actually transforms them as a church. What I, I want to remind you, look at what he says in verse 1. Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. From the beginning, the gospel, working through all of these issues and how the gospel speaks to him, and then getting to chapter 15 and saying, don't forget the gospel, because in reading my letter, I don't want you to forget the gospel. It's gospel all the way through, but I want to just drive this down. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. It's what will transform you. You don't need the gospel plus anything. You need the gospel and its implications from all of scripture applied to your life. Lived out. Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, present tense. So past tense, you received it, right? In which you stand, present tense. And in which you are being saved, future tense. You're, you're going to be saved by this gospel. It's not just what gets you, you don't just pray a prayer and then go about your life. You don't just get your get out of hell free card and put it in your pocket. No, the gospel you received and were brought into the kingdom, the church, the people of God. And then you have to stand on it. It's by which you stand and by which you're being saved. Past tense, present tense, future, the gospel is for all of it. You don't receive the gospel and then move on to something else. You just keep going deeper into the gospel and its implications. So here we go. Here's how we keep it above all. First of all, number one, reminding. I think the root issue of every problem in the Corinthian church is that they had forgotten the gospel and its implications. They needed a reminder. And guess what? We're made of the same stuff they are. We're prone to sin. We're prone to wander. And so we need constant reminders of the finished work of Christ. We need it every day. Every Sunday, a reminder of Christ and what he's done. The person and work of Christ. I want to remind you, brothers, of what I mentioned to you in chapter 1 and 2, because in the last few chapters, you might have forgotten. <laughs> I'm going to remind you constantly. I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Chapter 2. The root issue of every problem is that they were forgetting who they were, whose they were, and the power that brought them in this thing to begin with. They were forgetting it. And we could forget it too if we don't make it for first importance. Number two, preaching. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is a message to be proclaimed. The gospel I preached to you. The gospel is news to be proclaimed. That's what gospel means, is good news. And we just talked about what that good news is. That God has made a way of, for sinners to be made right with himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We just saw that in verses 3 through 6. But this is a message that has to be proclaimed. 
There's a, a famous statement that says, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, which is nonsense. The gospel is words. <laughs> your, your good deeds don't save anybody. But the words of Christ, coupled with Christ-like deeds, is a powerful combination. The gospel must be proclaimed, must be spoken in words, proclaimed to the lost, but also preached in the church, right? I want to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is not just for the lost, it's for us. It's for the saved. And as the preaching of the church goes, so goes the church. If the church begins to preach the gospel plus anything else, that church will slide. That church will slide out of the favor of God, will cease to be an effective gospel witness, and will be under God's judgment. The Corinthian church was started because of preaching. The gospel I preached to you, which you received into a church as you gathered around that gospel. And the Corinthian church will only be corrected and sustained by the preaching of the gospel. So, if I get hit by a bus this week and you have to find another pastor, find one who will preach the gospel to you every week and won't add or take away any part of it. That's the future of the church. That's the strength of the church, is the proclamation of the gospel. But then also third, receiving. It only has its, its desired effect if it's heard, right? Romans 10 talks about that. How can they believe unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? So the gospel must be heard. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. No one can be saved unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are billions of people around the world who've never even heard it never even had an opportunity, will live and die without ever hearing the message of Jesus. There might be people in our own neighborhood who have not had the gospel clearly articulated to them. There are people that are going to church every Sunday and not hearing the gospel preached to them. It's tragedy. Only way that faith comes is by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone is sent to preach? So receiving is hearing with faith. There's really kind of three stages to faith. There's the hearing the facts, right? Like just knowing the facts. So cognitively, the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the Son of God who lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, that if you repent of your sin and trust in Him, you can have eternal life, salvation, a right relationship with God. That's the gospel, very simply. Now, you know that now cognitively. You understand now, because you've heard that, you understand cognitively the facts of the gospel. That's part one. Part two is, is, is mentally assenting to the truthfulness of that. So you've heard it, you now know the content of it. Now, do you believe it's true? But even that doesn't really save you. Just cognitively, mental assent, yes, I think it's true. What saves you is when you trust in it. Not just think it's true, but trust in it. You, you see the difference between that, right? To say you believe in parachutes is a whole different thing than jumping out and trusting a parachute. And that's what the gospel is. You need to know the facts. You need to believe they're true. And then you have to trust in them. That's what saving faith is all about. I think there's a lot of people that just because they know the facts of the gospel, they think they're saved. They can repeat the words. But they don't believe it's true and they don't, they're not saved then at that point. Saving faith requires you knowing the facts, which means it has to be communicated, believing it's true and trusting in it. Saving faith is a trusting in it. Not just believing it's true, but trusting in it, committing your life to it, turning from your sin and putting your hope in it. That's how Brent Reeves says it all the time, is putting the full weight of your hope on the message. 
So to receive it is not just to know it in your head, not just to believe that it's generally true, but that you believe it, that you trust in it, that you trust in it as your own. And then next we have standing, remaining, trusting, grounding yourself in this message, standing on it, by which you stand, it says. This is the ground of your standing before God. It's not your works, it's not your deeds, it's not your church attendance. It's your embracing and standing on the gospel. Every day, all the time, constantly, it's your security in Christ, is your standing on the gospel. Holding fast. You say, uh, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, not just a one-time thing, but continuing to grip the gospel with all its worth. Or, it says, unless you believed in vain. So this, this idea of standing and holding fast to the gospel, preaching, receiving, standing, holding fast, reminding, and, we, uh, and, and our faith won't be in vain. Does that make sense? Okay, bottom line. Let me close this out. Bottom line. In this church, in this church, we will labor to keep the gospel as first importance. Who Christ is, what he's done, and how we receive it. This is going to take work and effort and focus on our part because there are a million things that want to pull and vie for our attention. The pull of our culture to add or subtract, to minimize or to just caricature, just leave off certain parts is very strong. There is a really strong tendency to want to modify the gospel and we're going to have to work at this to keep the gospel as first importance. Frankly, in my experience, the biggest opposition comes from church people who are discontent with the gospel and want us to add something to it. If we could just do the gospel plus this thing or the gospel plus this thing, yeah, 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 yeah. More stories or more whatever. Like those, there might be things that help enhance the gospel, help, help people hear the gospel, but we must never replace the gospel. And it is on us to make sure that we are never putting anything as a higher priority than the proclamation of the gospel. It is on all of us to labor in our attitudes and our words to contend with the supremacy of the gospel above all other priorities. Secondly, in this church, we will strive to know and speak the gospel message as clearly and compellingly as possible. That's not just my job. That is all of our jobs. To know the gospel as well as we can so that we can speak it as compellingly and clearly as possible. That's the job of a Christian, job of a pastor. Now, hopefully I'm modeling that well. Hopefully I'm taking you deep into this. But we all must strive to know it as deeply as possible and speak it as clearly and compellingly as possible. We have to strive. I chose strive carefully there. This takes work. You must master it so that you can speak it. You must know and understand the implications and begin to live them out personally in your home church in the world at your job we must never ever ever be bored with the gospel there are people that come in here and they're going to hear the words i speak and may or may not be convinced but they're going to look at the way you respond to what i'm preaching and they're going to you're preaching as much right now as i am you're preaching as much right now as i am by your response in the songs and the prayers and the preaching people are watching and determining whether or not that guy's legit whether that guy's message means anything. And if it doesn't look like it means anything, it falls on deaf ears. We all have a responsibility to make sure that we never become bored with the gospel. So show up early. Give your whole self in worship and service and prayer, attentiveness, and in your conversations. 
It's us as a body that is proclaiming the gospel. I get the wonderful privilege of being up front and directly going through the front door with it, but you're all preaching and proclaiming in some way right now. And there might be someone right here who's considering the gospel and your response to it may or may not lend to their um, um, response how much they believe this gospel to be true. In this church, we will trust no power, message, priority, or demand other than that which flows from the gospel. No additions, no subtractions, no substitutions, no caricatures. We will put all of our hope in the gospel spoken, sung, prayed, preached from all of scripture. The gospel will be in our kids' classes, um, in our home groups, in our coffee meetings. In this church, we will walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not just pardon for sin, but the power for godliness, as we see in this, right? All the issues in the Corinthian church are connected to their trusting and standing in the gospel. And we must always walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So that's who we want to be as a church, is the gospel of first importance. We must never leave or surrender the gospel. And I would just say, you know, a lot of this was kind of insider talk for church people. But I also want to give an invitation that if you have not trusted in this gospel, I hope right now that you will understand that your fundamental issue is that you are um, estranged from a holy God. And it is your sin that has separated you from him. But God in his kindness, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, has set forth a plan in motion to redeem you. God sent his only son to come and live the life you should have lived and then died the death that you deserve to die for sin. And now he rose again from the dead and is now extending an invitation that if you'll turn from your sin and whatever it is you're trusting in, whatever good news you're putting your hope in and trust in his good news, you'll be brought into a relationship with him. You'll be brought into a family, the church, and the gospel will be prized and God will be glorified and, uh, and you will be saved for eternity. So that's true for all of us. It's not just for the lost people, it's for us who are saved. It's still the power of God unto salvation by which we stand, which we're being saved, and we hold fast to it with all our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then uh, sing one more song. God, thank you for this time together. And God, we do. We exist because you have called us out of darkness into light. And we as a church exist because we want to be a um, a light a, that emanates forth that same um, grace. We want to be an outpost. We want to be a lighthouse that extends that same good news to others. And Lord, I pray that with all of the temptations that do and inevitably will come to want to change the message, to want to trust in something else, to want to help the gospel out in some ways that are unbiblical, God, I pray that you would help us all to stand firm together. Trust that you, by your spirit, through your word, the gospel and its implications preached from all of Scripture is what saves people. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to, to always keep our church firmly grounded in that. And, uh, God, I pray that if there's anyone in here who this is all brand new, Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity to their minds and that, uh, that they would come to believe and be brought into uh, the fellowship of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.